Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. We basically make the case, uh, well, wait a minute, where is the money? And if you look at the pie, a very thin slice of the pie is aid and kind of charitable donations. The, the, the vast majority, something like 97% of the money is actually in government. And so the question is, is how to use philanthropic money um, or aid to creatively and flexibly to unleash the money that actually already exists. You design a system and build an organizational culture that recognizes that, that people on the ground matter, their voice matters, what happens to them matters, that we have a responsibility because we're intervening in their lives. You will operate differently. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today, Ned. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe tell me a little bit about the background and how you came to really water for people. I had a professor in college from Somalia who took an interest in me and I don't know, he saw something and kind of threw me into Kenya. And I was fortunate enough through my university to go through a, a program in Kenya where I ended up in northern Kenya on the Kenyan-Ethiopian border in, in a place called the Hurry Hills. It was in the Chalbi Desert. And um, and I remember seeing this girl. We, we would interview pastoralists. Pastoralists are, you know, migratory um, uh, camel herders, really, uh, who move through the desert. And the Gabra, where I was working, were particularly mobile. And so we were interviewing these people, uh, these women and girls, one morning, and um, and I'm not sure where they came from. They had collected water. They had huge sacks of water on their camels' backs, and it wasn't really clear where they had come from, and it wasn't really clear where they were going either. And and I remember this girl, and I I remember her quite distinctly. She was pissed. Uh, she, you know, she didn't really want to talk to us. She was angry, and she. Um, she wanted to get moving. And I remember sitting there saying, yeah, this is outrageous. This, this girl is probably looking at her mom who's been doing this her whole life. And she's seeing this as her future. And she possibly imagines a different future. So I became really hooked on water and sanitation up there. Um, I spent about 20 years in Africa doing water and sanitation work, mostly for local um, NGOs, uh, and got a really different perspective on that, was able to try some really interesting things. And the thing I liked about working for local NGOs is that, you know, results matter. And so um, I spent a lot of time building monitoring systems to see what impact we were having and what things we were doing well and what things we weren't doing well. And, it'll, and, and the things that we weren't doing well created real space for kind of different ideas and new innovations and and all of that, and kind of traveled through Africa for, like I say, about 20 years. Um, my father-in-law, who I cared for greatly, got terminal cancer, so my family and I had to come home, and uh, I was able to join Water for People, which was a really interesting organization going through a big change, and we were able to kind of harness uh, the power of Water for People and the, the relationships it had in the North American water and wastewater community in particular um, to do something bigger and bolder than, than it had had done before. And so we kind of created this different organization here that is kind of pushing the edges of water and sanitation worldwide and asking hard questions about our work. And that's really how I got here. 
Right, right. And, and, and what is the scale of your operations today? I mean, how do you characterize, I guess, in terms of number of people and countries? And and then maybe a little bit later, probably look at the impact area, because a very big question. I know one that you spent a lot of time thinking about. Sure. So what we tried to do at Water for People was define scale and replication and impact slightly differently. So the conventional approach to to nonprofit work, whether in the UK or uh, United States, Canada, Europe, whatever, um, Africa, Asia, Latin America, is basically size based, right? So good organizations are seen as fairly big um, and have lots of programs around the world and impacting lots of people. Um, we try to do it slightly differently. We basically said, what size do we need to be to be influential? And how could we model things where the goal of what we did was to really kind of be, be willing to try things, but let it go, let, let others take it up. And so we think of size and scale differently. So our basic numbers are um, we're in nine countries around the world right now, five in Latin America, three in Africa, and then two states in India. And we chose that because um, that's a really diverse kind of range of countries. So you have diverse cultures, diverse economies, diverse politics, uh, diverse challenges, diverse hydrology, um, diverse settlement patterns, diverse poverty challenges. So, so it's a good mix. So we could, we could look across the globe and say, if what we're doing makes sense and, it, and we can see movement in these three areas, then there might be something to that. Um, the second thing is we kind of judge our work really on whether others take it up. Um, and the others we're looking at are basically uh, governments. Um, so if you look at water and sanitation, the pie, what a lot of people argue is if we're going to help um, all these people around the world who don't have access to water, we need more money. Um, we basically make the case, uh, well, wait a minute, where is the money? And if you look at the pie, a very thin slice of the pie is aid and kind of charitable donations. The, the, the vast majority, something like 97% of the money is actually in government. And so the question is, is how to use philanthropic money um, or aid to creatively and flexibly to unleash the money that actually already exists um, in country and is not being spent. Um, so WaterAid, I, I worked for WaterAid for seven years, great organization in the UK. Um, they did a study in the early 2000s around called Boiling Point, and it was basically a kind of standard, um, lots of people don't have water, we need more money um, if we're going to solve this problem piece, which was disappointing because actually there's a table in there that I'll never forget, which had every country that WaterAid was looking at, working in, um, and as part of this study, which Mozambique, where I worked, was one of them. And it basically asked a very simple question. It said, how much money does government actually have? How much is available in the sector um, in these countries for water and sanitation investments? And there was a number. And then how much is actually spent? And the amount that was actually spent was almost negligible. So I was in Mozambique for seven years. Um, the government never spent more than 25% of what it actually had for water and sanitation. So money wasn't moving. Um, in India, a couple of years ago, they left $2 billion on the table that was for water and sanitation investments that they couldn't move. So the question we ask is, how can we structure ourselves in a way that kind of starts to move this money and, and get and use our philanthropic um, capital creatively, but not to solve every problem? And then if we can do that, 
um, and then see other districts, other mayors, other political leaders um, start to take this up, then that's how we can get some scale. So let's not build ourselves to be this super huge organization with a target of 100 million beneficiaries in five years, which is generally garbage. Um, let's actually see if we can actually model something that becomes so inspiring, so irresistible that others take it up and it scales that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's a very exciting vision. Just on the question of those sums of money, I mean, to what extent do those sums really exist? Are they potentially just bookkeeping kind of concepts? The two billion, for example, is that actually money that the government actually has to invest? Our experience is that that money is there. Um, and really what, what the challenge is, is every country in the world has some sort of policy around decentralizing responsibility. The UK has it, the United States has it, Ghana has it, Kenya has it. It's basically the Ministry of Finance has a responsibility to give money down to local government level. Um, our experience is that the Ministry of Finance looks around at at local government uh, departments of finance and says, I wouldn't give you a dime. And so we spend an enormous amount of time actually making districts um, good investments. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is when di we help district um, finance departments in kind of procurement and tendering and drawing down money and reporting on that money and auditing and all those kinds of things, um, they get more money. And so last year we saw a 39% increase in the amount of money governments were allocating to water and sanitation um, because they were starting to pull some money. One of the reasons was they were starting to pull some money down from the Ministry of Finance for that. And what's happening, one of the reasons why other local government officials are interested in this program is because the mayors, the leaders of the places we're working, frankly, are bragging. They're kind of saying, one is we're solving this development problem. We're really making progress on water and sanitation, and we're going to full coverage in our district. Um, and two is we're getting more money uh, from the Ministry of Finance. And other mayors say, what? <laughs> How do I get a piece of that? And so that's what leads to spread. So, again, our strategy is identify where the money is, use our capital creatively. We put money on the table, too. Sometimes we put it through uh, government institutions to almost pump prime it and test it and then build up the confidence of ministries of finance to start allocating money down. And when we do that, we're seeing it starting to happen. Well, that's very exciting. It's great. Uh, I, I suppose the other thing which people will inevitably ask about is corruption. I know talking to other social entrepreneurs that more generally, uh, not, not corruption, but there are obstacles to changing the status quo that uh, in a particular situation, there are various parties that may you know, benefit in different ways from the status quo, not necessarily in purely financial, taking money out of a pot, as it were. But clearly what you're doing is there's a lot of trust building as well. Here's the thing is, um, let's look at this in two ways. Number one is the only thing sustainable in any of these places we work is actually local government. Local government's going to be there forever. Businesses are going to come and go. NGOs are going to come and go. Community leadership's going to come and go. But local government is actually an institution that has some legs. And so you got to deal with it. That's that's one. Two is corruption is an issue. I mean, corruption is an issue here in Denver, Colorado. Um, we, we Corruption is a challenge all around the world. And one of the things that we're finding is by we're, we're kind of fanatical monitors and we publish information very publicly. Um, there are ways to navigate corruption issues that um, 
that if you are willing to take them on, you can. So let me give you a story. When I worked with WaterAid, um, I, I worked in northern Mozambique. And when I got there, I was shocked to see that every water point that was being put in uh, throughout the district cost anywhere from seven and a half to twelve and a half thousand dollars. And I was like, that's crazy for drilling a borehole, putting on, you know, you know, lining the borehole, putting on a, a what's called an apron, which is basically just a cement um, stand. So and then put a hand pump on it. Twelve and a half thousand dollars. You got to be kidding me. So what we did was we did this. We did this um, work where we literally would build them in public and count every brick and every bag of cement and every pipe. And surprise, surprise, they actually cost um, between fifteen hundred and three thousand, depending on the technology you put on top, depending on the hand pump. Right. So we didn't have to say anything because then we just said, "Hey, that's what it costs." And what started happening is community started to say, "Wait a minute, are you telling me that I could get three hand pumps for the cost of that one hand pump?" And so they so started to build build up a kind of groundswell of challenges to that. Then donors started to ask harder questions because they saw it was less expensive. We never mentioned the word corruption. The thing that was fascinating, I knew it had worked, was basically what was happening is the private sector had absolutely no problem paying off um, government officials when they got, you know, for $3,000, they put in a, you know, they got paid $12,000. Sure, I'll hand that over. But once you actually did a real price with some good profit and and government officials tried to squeeze um, the private sector for that, the private sector responded. And so there was a very famous case in Nyasa where um, the director of public works was brought to the governor by three private companies because he was squeezing them. And the governor backed the private sector and the director of public works got transferred because no one gets fired. But he got transferred to doing like soil samples on roads in the worst province in the country. So <laughs> there are ways to challenge it. Um, we're finding in our work that because the outcome is so clear, the outcome of our work in local government areas. So local government covers, you know, hundreds and hundreds or thousands and thousands of villages. Um the outcome is every family, every school, and every clinic has access to water and sanitation. So it's it's verifiable, and people know in those in those districts they know if they've been served or not. And so the the focus has switched to just banging in a bunch of boreholes and putting in water points. To wait a minute, have you got everyone? And what we've seen is um, that because of democratization around the world, everyone tends to focus on national level politics. But local level politics are actually much more interesting, and mayors who do not deliver get voted out. And so you're seeing a switch. I'm not saying corruption is eliminated, but there are ways to deal with it, and you're seeing a switch in incentives. A lot of these mayors have higher political ambitions. Um, they're trying to demonstrate something at local level and then move up the political chain. And yeah, you can. I think you can deal with corruption by the the, the alternative is what we've been doing for 30 years. For 30 years, we've been avoiding local government, saying it's corrupt, assuming, and, and frankly, the avoiding of local government has not eliminated corruption on the part of nonprofits and local private sector and international private, you know, it's just a different kind of vehicle of corruption. Um, we, and, and the impact has been really bad water and sanitation work. What we're finding is by bringing local government in, by helping them do their job better by um, by understanding political incentives and and people wanting to rise up the chain through success, and by bringing communities in with a voice, 
you can navigate this a little bit. Is it gone? No. Um, do I know what it is? No. I, I don't think I'll ever know what it is, but I would be idiotic to pretend that uh, that it doesn't exist if we bypass government. Does right. Yeah, no, absolutely. It fits in a lot with your vision of measuring impact and so forth and, and I guess transparency and just at every step of the way trying to bring clarity and transparency and in a sense, as you say, you don't need to name it. It just stands in its own right and and it's it's a powerful message. One thing that many, many people I've spoken to have also said is how slow it takes to create change, <laughs> you know, from their initial ideas and the possibilities they can see. When when working with local government and so forth, what is a realistic kind of time frame or how should people think about that? Obviously, you've built close relationships and, and do that over time with local governments and communities and so forth. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the I think the reason why it's hard to get change is because people look for enormous change almost too soon. Um, we believe at Water for People, we believe that you have to model that change. You have to demonstrate it, and then people will look at it and go, "Oh, I get that. I can see that. I can do that too." And that's what we're starting to see. So it's taken us, you know, four years with um, a bunch of local governments around the world to actually develop this trust, get money moving get real momentum towards full coverage. We have two districts in the world that we were working in um, that have achieved full coverage. One is an opposition district in Bolivia, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, and then we have about five more that are coming online this year. So it took about four years to get some momentum. But what we're seeing now, which is really interesting, is because we took the time to do that and because we um, – we were patient. We were impatient overall. We're an impatient organization, but we were patient in the field and getting this going. Now that people can start to see it, it's generating momentum and it'll go a bit faster. Right. Right. That's excellent. I think social yeah. entrepreneurs just try to jump too quick. How do you know? I mean, how do you get the balance? Because resilience is obviously terribly important and the ability to keep going. And yet sometimes, you know, people are clearly going down the wrong path or and so yep. forth. I guess it's like everything. Right. So how do you how do you keep going in, in the slowness? Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think I think if you've set up uh, your enterprise or organization with a big, hairy, audacious goal and then you are you track it, you monitor it, and you you kind of know that you're not going to get there right away. But you basically say, we're going to track our progress on a quarterly, biannual, annual basis, whatever it is. Um, and what we're going to look for are two things. One is, and everything's focused on that big outcome. So for us, it's full water and sanitation coverage at a at a district level that then spreads to other districts and goes national and all that stuff. So we've got to get that first part right. So what are we doing well when we track this? Work is going on. Money's moving. Projects are being implemented. People are getting serviced. Jobs are being created. All that kind of stuff. So what is working? What's good? And that's that's great. Let's build on that. And what's not working? And then I think the job of entrepreneurs, the really good ones, are the ones who can hold the space for the bad news and basically say, okay, that's not working as planned. The goal is still the right goal. So what are we going to change? And what are we going to do differently? And then having the kind of flexibility to do, to do that. And most organizations don't have that flexibility. I think we've done a lot to build that flexibility. And so what you see are organizations, you know, kind of 
country programs in the Water for People family who build around strength and pivot around weakness or challenges. And out of that, good stuff comes. And I think that's where excitement comes from. That's how you lure really creative people who want to change things. And, and it's really around understanding that momentum, good and bad, intervening and trying to keep the momentum going forward while spreading, you know, lessons and kind of ideas beyond where we're working that, that lets you see the path to that bigger goal. If you don't do that, if you're just, uh, you know, we're going to put in, you know, in the water sector, most organizations have a beneficiary target. So we're going to help a hundred million people, you know, in the next five years, then, you know, it's not inspiring. It's not interesting. It's been done for 30 years. It hasn't led to a big change. And I think people are bored of that. Right. That's a very uh, interesting way of framing it to build for strength and pivot around weakness. <laughs> I mean, how well established is that that kind of idea? I mean, how well are social businesses doing at measuring impact? I mean, what is the state of, of the world in, in that area? Well, it's pretty dire, frankly. I mean, most organizations don't monitor. Most organizations talk about how they should monitor, but then they complain about not having enough money or not having enough time or you know, and, and those are unhealthy organizations. Um, and those are the ones who they, they could be big, they could be seemingly scaled, but they're not very effective. And they know that. And frankly, we're luring a lot of their staff. So there you go. <laughs> um, right. I think that I think that the, the ones who are good at it are actually the smaller ones. Um, so there's a number of organizations. There's there's one in the U.S. called Splash, based in Seattle, really data strong. There's a great uh, sanitation organization in uh, Kenya and Ghana and places like that. Sanergy, Clean Team, Teeks, you know, very data hungry and very comfortable with with this idea of kind of ooh that's not working very well. So what are we going to do differently? Um, and I think it's really the bigger organizations, the ones that are like looped into DFID and USAID and all that kind of stuff that like to talk about monitoring, but don't do it. And frankly, it's not really, they're not built to do it. And even if they started collecting data, it, it would be more kind of PR data. Um, there's a group in the U.S. called Bridgestone. Uh, they did a fascinating study on monitoring in the nonprofit sector in general. And they found that only 3% of organizations that they surveyed, and it was a big survey. Three percent of organizations actually monitor to improve. Most monitor for donor needs or for um, PR. And those organizations, you know, miss the point. If you monitor to improve, you will lure donors. Frankly, if you monitor to improve and get better all the time, then you will have, you know, the PR, if you will, um, that maybe isn't about you per se, but is about the issue. Um, but if you monitor just to please other people and not really to get better, then, yeah, you're going to be stagnant. And that's that's the landscape. The majority are stagnant and the ones that are good have invested in monitoring for improvement and will get better. That's a shocking statistic. I mean, I know talking to various social entrepreneurs, one of the benefits they see of, of social business, I suppose, as against, well, you know, I mean, it's a broad church, isn't it? There's so many different kinds of organizations, but the more traditional nonprofit and so forth is the idea of being, I suppose, responsive to, you know, stakeholders needs or to, you know, customers, I suppose, and, and so forth and bringing in, you know, a more granular analysis and so forth. Why is the situation so dire? Well, the situation is dire because the market is messed up, right? So if you think about it, um, 
if you're in the charitable world or if you're in the kind of aid kind of sucking world of many nonprofits, um, who, who is your stakeholder? Your stakeholder is your donor, you know, and, and despite the rhetoric, that's the way it is. Whereas if you design a system, again, if you design a system and build an organizational culture that recognizes that, that people on the ground matter, their voice matters, what happens to them matters, that we have a responsibility because we're intervening in their lives, you will operate differently. And donors love it. Uh, I think aid agencies love it too. It's just the market hasn't switched to accommodate that different approach to impact and programmatic performance. Most nonprofits will sit back and say, donors don't like it if we, you know, if we show bad results. That's not my experience at all. If you show, this is what we're doing well, this is what we suck at, this is what we propose to get better at, are you still with us? I, I've never had a donor walk away from that. So focus on the ground, focus on your customers, stop the rhetoric around it and actually build a program and an organization around that and you will do better. I think it's that simple. Right. And how much more knowledge is there now about doing that and doing that in a clever way compared to five years ago or 10 years ago? Oh, I definitely think it shifted. I think most organizations know they need to go in that direction. I think where we are now is there's a real confusion again around data collection. So I think, I think there's a real appetite now of, among many organizations to collect data on results. I think the two outstanding issues are one, um, many organizations struggle with the idea of looking far back. I think they want to, but, um, you know, again, their focus, many of them is like, we've got to help a hundred million people. So you're looking ahead and just counting the number of people you helped as opposed to, really looking at what impact it had and whether that investment lasted. And and so I think that transition still needs to happen is that people need to say, hey, the, the investments that we made five years ago were responsible for that. That That's sort of the next step. And the second thing I think is that building an organization that can handle bad news is not easy. And having the leadership from the board level and from the senior management level that is willing to hold space for bad news, that is not there yet. And so a lot of people are confusing data collection with actually being a performance-based organization. And I think that'll that'll take some more time. Right, right. For aspiring social entrepreneurs or people at an early stage of their development and, and, and so forth, I suppose it's never too early to really think seriously about measurement and impact. And it sounds like from what you're saying, in a sense, that the questions you asked pretty much determined the strategy that you followed. If you bake kind of monitoring and measurement and reflection, honest reflection into your DNA, into your organization's DNA from the start, um, and don't see it as an add-on, oh, we did this work, oh, by the way, we need to go monitor, or oh, we need to go evaluate it, but make it part of your DNA right from day one, you are way ahead. Great. Just wanted to go back to one thing you mentioned earlier, this question of modeling your successes, I suppose. I mean, you've clearly thought a lot about transferring expertise or what's working to other areas. Clearly, you know, a hugely important area. What have you learned about this and what could could you pass on to other social entrepreneurs about this question of, of, uh, you know, sharing best practice or making sure it gets transmitted? Yeah, it's a great question. So a uh, couple things. One is 
Uh, debrand. A lot of organizations are really brand sensitive, but the sooner you debrand your stuff and and open it up for others to embrace, um, the better. Uh, and that's not easy because, again, in a world where brand matters, it, doing the dance between your brand and unbranding, it, it can be quite hard. But I think we've done that in a number of instances, and the impact has been quite significant um, as others have taken it up and not seen it as a kind of water for people thing. Um, and that's what we're trying to do. If we really want to solve these problems and if we really believe that we alone can't solve them, then you have have to do that. So that's one. Two is that um, – I think I think there are staff issues that are quite interesting. So I think there's there are staff that implement the model, if you will. So you, you're modeling in the district, and there's a particular type of staff that are really good at at, at doing that work at local level. Um, once it starts to spread to other districts, and we're not going to go and jump and do the same thing in every district, but we're going to support them to do it with without you know, kind of the heaviness of what we did in the, in the districts we modeled in, that's actually a different staff. Um, and, and, and it's a different skill set. And that's really interesting. And then as it starts to move to national level, as we've seen in a couple of countries, that itself is also a different skill set. So you as an organization have to be able to navigate the changes in what's happening and bring in talent in different ways and at different times. Um, and I think you got to think about that right away. And then the last thing is, um, I think you, you met, you mentioned something around, you know, the, we're modeling success. We're, we're, we, we don't use the word success very often. We, we talk about movement a lot. We talk about positive movement and negative movement. We talk about, uh, positive kind of momentum and challenges a lot. Um, we don't generally think we're succeeding, if that sounds weird. We're, we're succeeding in the sense of building interest and excitement and evidence. Um, but our core mission is to make sure water and sanitate water services are flowing to every family, every school and every clinic forever. And we haven't succeeded with that yet. And so in some senses, we, we're, we're never satisfied. And again, building an organization that is in some senses never satisfied is challenging. But if you do it, you get really cool people to work with you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And in, I was going to say an Irish fashion, but in a, in some kind of fashion, a, a question that I really should have started with. But um, how would you characterize the scale of the problem, the water problem? I mean, well, the water problem, yeah. scale of the problem is it's global. Um, I live in Denver, Colorado, and we have a water problem. Uh, you guys, you, you know, the UK had a, a really hard winter, right? You got a lot of water. Um, uh, but, you know, you guys have long-term water problems too. Um, and so we, we have a challenge around the world of kind of declining water resources, changing weather patterns, um, increased demand on those water resources from business, communities, uh, tourism, agriculture, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of pressure on this stuff. And if we're going to be, if we're going to be successful, we're going to have to model again, going back to modeling, we're going to have to model ways that ensure that water resources are available to all forever, um, that competing demands are managed well, and that, you know, we as a, as a species can thrive for, for generations. And so, what we do is in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, but we, we, what we do resonates in North America. It resonates in the UK. It resonates in Holland. 
because this issue is 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 maybe the maybe one of the most important issues facing our species moving forward. So we got to yeah. get it right. We got to get it right. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, um, just to come back to the the idea underpinning this as a little bit as well is what inspires you, Ned and you know, we talked about, you know, the, the trajectory of uh, Water for People. There's obviously been some pretty challenging times along the way. What keeps you going and what inspires you? So it's a great question. I I think I got involved in water and sanitation for a really simple reason. I think, I think I'm not a social engineer, right? I, I, I don't want to make decisions about where people go, what they do, what education they have, all that kind of stuff. But what I do know is that if you can free up the chores and the kind of disease burden and everything around water and sanitation, you potentially unleash kids in very new ways. And I I get really inspire, inspired when I see children freed up from these burdens and they do amazing, amazing things. Some become great moms. Some become great teachers. Some become, you know, community activists that they would not be able to do if they were still fetching water in that muddy puddle and getting sick every day. And so I sort of get really excited when water flows and people don't need external support at all. And you start to see these girls, frankly, these girls start to really blossom and to take control of their lives that you know, I, I, I love watching that. So when I have bad days, I always remember there's a handful of people who I know around the world who are doing great things because they were freed of the burden of water and sanitation. And uh, and that keeps me going. That's uh, very inspiring and uh, it's great work. So I thank you, Ned, for your time and sharing your experience with inspiring social entrepreneurs. And uh, it's been really uh, interesting and I think very valuable as well. So thank you. And, um, well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.